Hello and welcome to another episode of Pakistanomy. If you've been listening in and tuning into our conversations every week, talked about a whole host of topics ranging from Pakistan's gas and power sector to water to startups. But one thing I think I'm guilty of not talking enough about is the role of women in Pakistan's economy. We've got the Aurat March coming up and I felt that before social media and people's WhatsApps and other conversations get overtaken by some banner or the other that skews the conversation in a direction that it shouldn't go, frankly, um, that we have a conversation around what I personally think, looking at the data from the, an outsider's perspective, is the systemic exclusion of women from Pakistan's economy. And to shed some light on this and tell us about what the data suggests, what on-the-ground research shows about the role of women in Pakistan's economy, the good, the bad, and the ugly, we have with us Dr. Hadia Majid. She's an ass assistant professor at the Department of Economics um, at LUMS. Um, she is someone who has deep research experience on this topic. She's a Fulbright scholar, has a PhD in development economics from the Ohio State University. And her research primarily focuses on labor markets in Pakistan. And she's documented and explored the barriers women face when they try to participate in the country's labor market and its economic activity. So Dr. Hadia, thank you so much for taking out the time today and joining us here on Pakistanomy. Thank you, Azair. Thank you for having me. I want to begin with this, A, whether you agree with my perspective that there is systemic exclusion of women from Pakistan's economy, and whether you agree with it or not, help the listener and the viewer understand what it is like to be a woman who's trying to participate or is actually a participant in Pakistan's economy, and why is there the reality that Pakistan, even among the region, India, Pakistan, Bangladesh countries that got independence together in 1947 and Bangladesh from Pakistan much after, um, that Pakistan continues to lag behind these countries even when it comes to both labor participation for women as well as literacy for women in the country. Sure, so you're absolutely right. When you look at the data in terms of female labor force participation, we have the lowest in the region. And if even if you look at the broader region, Afghanistan, Afghanistan is the only country in this region that has a worse uh, FLFP uh, than we do. And uh, so, so there are two things to keep in mind. One is that there's a formal female labor force participation rate, and then there's an informal female labor force participation rate. If you look at formal female labor force participation rate, ko hai, so that hovers around 22%. Uh, if you look at the data trajectory, then we've from the 90s, we've had an 80% increase in uh, the female labor force participation rate. So there are more women in the labor market today than there were 20, 30 odd years ago. But the gains are very little. They're not, in the sense that in terms of relative gains, there's been a major change. But if you look at it from an absolute perspective, or even if you look at it from the perspective of how much men have gained versus how much women participate, if we are not where we want to be. And one of the ways that we figure out where we, uh, where we are in terms of where we would like to be is, there have been a lot of estimates in terms of what the GDP will gain if we see more women participating. And those estimates are quite large. So there's been a recent estimate by World Bank, which says if we can get 30% of women working, then we will see a 60% gain in GDP. And these are not minor gains. So we're talking about considerable jumps in terms of our uh, GDP, if we can get more women to participate. 
so why haven't we been successful in getting women to participate now i think that ismay a lot of times we tend to focus on the supply side so we tend to focus on what is the what is the woman's literacy level what is the kind of experience that she has what is the kind of training that she has what is her home environment like why isn't she able to step out of the home and work and is there bahut sare factors aa jaate hain like you rightly pointed out there isn't uh, we, we don't see women's educational attainment at the same level as we see men so we see a lot of gender gaps when it comes to human capital in pakistan we are one of the worst performers if you look at the gen, global gender gap index uh, in terms of gender inequality and usme aap chahe education ko dekh le aap usme health access ko dekh le political participation may we tend to do a little bit better because of the quota seats that we have within our parliament but aap koi si bhi indicator dekh le and there is a big gender gap now of course that translates into women not having the necessary skill set that the labor market may demand so that's one aspect that you could think of then the other thing is that women face a major reproductive burden and women because they face such a major reproductive burden they they have to spend a considerable time at home taking care of children taking care of the elderly uh there is a scant data on this but the little data that we have and some of this data is also dated uh what we know is that <clears throat> whether women work or they don't work they do the exact same number of uh hours taking care of children and taking care of the elderly and doing housework so usse hame andaaza ye hota hai ki women ke upar time burden bahut hai ke unko pata hai ke whether they step out of the house to do work or not they have to come back and do a considerable amount of work within the home and that is frankly speaking very tiring so that's one that there is one of the reasons why women may actually be opting out of the labor market because they know they still face a lot of time poverty so i also want to take our attention to what the work environment looks like for women the work environment is fairly hostile uh, if you consider women's office spaces even if you consider other types of work and i'll come to other types of work in just a bit if we don't have uh, we have some laws protecting women's rights at work these are more recent laws but we don't have a lot of good implementation of these laws and given that women face hostile work environment given that we have quite a bit of wage gap as far as women is concerned so women earn only about 70% of what men do and this gap in earnings between men and women persists aap koi bhi education level le le aap koi bhi occupation level so even when you're looking at fairly literate women when you're looking at highly educated women in high end occupations even there you'll see that men with similar education levels will earn more so we we really have to step back and ask ourselves is it really worth it for women to step into the labor market uh, if they're going to face a hostile work environment if they're going to come home and be burdened with homework if they're going to be seeing that they're not earning enough then why should they opt for the labor market so but on the other side i also want to talk a little bit about the kind of informal work that women are doing i want to talk a little bit about the agriculture sector for example so there we see there is a large percentage of women working in your agriculture sector pakistan has seen what we call a feminization of agriculture where the vast majority of your labor is women you've seen an exodus of men from the agriculture sector towards manufacturing towards services and more and more women are employed in agriculture now the type of work that these women do <clears throat> they're working on family farms a lot of time they're working without any remuneration 
they're working in circumstances where the state has only recently started to recognize that peasant peasant aapki jo female workers hai unke kuch rights hai so sin has recently passed a law regarding this women don't own uh, land agriculture land women are not part of water associations and we've only recently passed a law which gives women the right to be part of water association so the, the reason why i'm highlighting all of these is because there are many major aspects of the market of the economy that interconnects with the labor market where women have little to no rights of representation so the nature of your labor market is such that women are considered secondary workers despite the fact that there are sectors of the labor market where you see overwhelming representation of women they are still considered secondary workers within our labor market and what that means is any time we face some we face some sort of downturn we face some sort of macroeconomic crisis the woman is going to be the first worker that's going to be laid off and i want to point out that pakistan is not a uh, singular in this when you start breaking down the data and you start really disaggregating what is happening in bangladesh what is happening in india a very similar types type of pattern emerges you even in bangladesh which has higher rates of labor force participation from women as compared to pakistan you see women are mostly in unproductive types of work in low wage work there are they are in work which is not very well paid they are in work which more recent uh, re research suggests is in danger of being automated as your economy moves towards automation so the point is ke yes we are in a bad state as far as female labor force participation is concerned but the kind of picture that we see in pakistan it is something that is happening all over the world it is something that we seeing ke women are more forced into the type of work which is unpaid it's unregulated it's not very safe they're not very well paid and we have to step back and question do we really want women to be working in these types of circumstances hum kehte bahut hain ki ha we want women to be a part of the labor force we want women to come out of their homes and be part of the labor force but we're not i feel we're not doing enough in making sure that the type of work that they do the nature of the work that they do is really worth it for them to come out of their homes we have to keep in mind that they face a lot of pressure at home and we're not willing to either relieve that pressure or really make that outside attractive uh, outside option really attractive for them so i i want to touch upon that last point you made because that's very interesting in terms of the internal family burden of especially child bearing and the work a woman has to do there's also an international debate now whether housework should be qualified as actually paid work because of people should be paid that's technically unpaid informal work if you want to define it that way but what's your view in terms of the fact that when you look at for example fertility data compare that between india pakistan and bangladesh again pakistan is on the higher end of the spectrum among the three countries um i think it's just below afghanistan because uh, afghanistan has made some gains in that space as well over the last few years so is there any research or do you have a point of view on the causality there whether high fertility rates are driving the, the or driving a reduction in the labor force participation for women or is it something else like i'm just curious to understand like what are some of the key drivers that force a woman to not seek out work beyond even beyond the the role that she has to play at home 
So I've done some work on this myself. And what I found was, and I mean, when it comes to formal uh, female labor force participation rates, we're working at the margin. We're working at very little changes as you move from zero children to three children, five children, et cetera. So what I, what I see is that the, when you have the first child, you see a dip in female labor force participation rates. And that's understandable. The first child, I mean, frankly, nobody really prepares you for that first child. It's, uh, it's difficult to manage work when you have the first child. But as you continue to have children, as the number of children increases, you do start seeing that the, the, the that initial dip that happens because of your first child, it, it sort of peters away. So you'll see women stepping into the labor force as, uh, as they continue to have children. And it's only when the children grow up and the woman, um, woman may be seeing that one of her older children can step into the labor market in place of her, that you start seeing again that female labor force participation rates start to peter out. So my sense is that when it comes to fertility and we're talking about, so let's for a minute think about that section of the Pakistan economy where you need that second stream of income to come in. So if you look at lower income households, you might still see a dip in female labor force participation rate or women might cut down the number of hours that they're working when they have their first child, but they step right back into the labor market uh, as soon as they, the, the, the first child grows up a little bit or they, even when they're having a second or third child. And it's only when the children uh, are older that uh, the, some of the economic pressures are relieved for the household and women can take a little bit of a back seat again as far as labor force participation is concerned. When you ask women questions about their mobility and the reasons why they don't work, then it, it's a really interesting picture because a lot of women say that they actually would want to work, um, but the house burden is such, the mobility restrictions are such that they don't work. So they'd like to work, but uh, house burdens uh, the general public atmosphere is preventing them from work. So the current, uh, there's some current research that I'm doing and we're doing a lot of qualitative interviews with women from low literate, low income backgrounds. And these are mostly female factory workers. And what's staggering is just the amount of negotiation that takes place, not just at the household level, but the entire community gets involved anytime a woman is seeking work. So what the stories that we're hearing, what they're really highlighting for us is this is intense negotiation that takes place within the household to so that the woman can step out of the home and work. That, that's number one. Number two, women are facing harassment both en route and at work. And a lot of times they're being asked by supervisors with the, on the factory floor to just turn a blind eye, just close their ears to that harassment. And the women themselves are saying that, look, if I say anything, that the harassment actually gets worse. When I leave the factory, it gets worse. And the final thing that we're noting is, and this is not just from my own work, but from work of colleagues, that there is a loss of identity that women face when they are forced to get out of the home and work. And this is particularly true for your low-income women. This, what they narrate for us is that when we got married, we were told you will sit in the home and you will take care of the children, that you will take care of the home. And now because my husband is laid off of work and there's not enough income coming in and we are being forced to get out of the home and work and they're facing a real loss of identity. So 
it's it's a complex mechanism that we really have to disentangle in order to figure out what is the optimum solution as far as women's labor force participation is concerned. And it's not entirely clear what are the levers that we need to push. So this, in order to get women to work, and it's not going to be a singular lever that we can push and we'll, be see, we'll see, oh, okay, if we just get this one policy right, we'll be able to get women to get out of their home and work. There's a number of factors that we have to consider and we have to see the interplay of those factors if we really want to see sustained increases in women's female labor force participation. So a, a couple of things here that I want your perspective on, maybe you have a perspective from qualitative research or otherwise, is one, when you say that there's a whole negotiation at the community level that occurs, what are some of the questions or even beyond the questions, what are some of the successful strategies that women or others use to get that negotiation concluded in a positive manner so that the woman can step out? And number two, that there are mobility restrictions. I'm from Karachi, a city like Karachi has terrible public transport. So one can only imagine what women face when they go back and forth from work every day. But then in cities like Peshawar and Lahore and Rawalpindi, now we have the Metro bus. So has that sort of had an impact at the community level where sentiments are changing and people say, you know what, it's not a crowded mini bus where you have to hang or face, you know, be, be in, in the bus like chickens. It's actually more convenient, comfortable, et cetera. And so I'm more okay with, you know, my daughter or my wife, et cetera, going out for work. Like how, how does that work? So fantastic questions. Um, the first question that you have about the negotiation that takes place and what are some successful strategies? Uh, one of the things that a lot of researchers are working on these days, and there's quite a bit of experiments that's come out on this, is the introduction of role models. And in this, you can think about it in terms of physical role models. So there's a success story within the community itself that you can highlight. That look, uh, the woman who lives two doors down from us, she goes out of the home every day. She's never faced harassment. And I could, I could do the same. It's not really a problem. What's really interesting is some of the strategies that women themselves, I'm, women themselves have highlighted for us. Uh, one of the women that we were talking to said that I make sure that I leave with a group of 40 to 50 year olds women who are leaving the factory at a particular time. I make sure that I don't do any overtime because who's going to try and treat, tease an entire gang of women. So that's, the, that's, the, that's what she believes is the best strategy. A lot of times what we see women doing is I mean, and this is part of the negotiation that the only way that they get to leave the home is because it is if a son or some other male kin accompanies them or takes them on a motorcycle. Or if a chingchi comes right outside the house and drops them off. So there are a number of strategies that can be employed. One of the things that people as researchers are working with is not just physical role models, but also media role models. So is there a video that we can show? Is there a play that we can put on for people? Can we partner with some institution, some MFI institution to sort of uh, have dramas or plays that can be played on television that will allow, or that will normalize women to women stepping out of the home and, uh, taking part of some type, some type of work. In terms of public transport, um, so there are two perspectives on this. And I think that what we have to keep in mind is just the class division that, uh, that, that we see. So the 
across income strata, you see very different strategies as far as transportation is concerned. So in my work with domestic workers, what I found was that they faced a lot of harassment even on public transport and people made it very clear to them who were sharing the bus with them that they didn't belong on the bus because they were from too low a socioeconomic strata. So they, um, they, they felt very uncomfortable using the bus and even in public transport, there was a lot of harassment that occurred. Um, and so women would tell us stories that even when they were wearing full, so whether they were wearing a hijab or they had a niqab on or any strategy that they employed, they would still face harassment. A lot of women would walk to work and what we found, what they would tell us then is that even while they're walking, they would face harassment, number one. And number two, because they were walking to work, they would have to severely limit the number of houses that they could go to and that would reduce their earning capacity. So public transport here, like in public transport, one is not, it's not wide enough. Uh, Metro bus is just one lane, it's just one main artery in Lahore so far. So beyond that, women still are forced to use minibuses and there's not enough a big network of public transport for women to be using. Within the public transport, there's not enough space for women within the buses. The fact is that they have to uh, a lot of times share seats or spaces with men and they face harassment in that. And then the second thing that I want to point out is even though there are compartments or areas within public buses, and we are also, we've done experiments where women, we've used women only buses. So even in rickshaws, you're now seeing some women only rickshaws. The cities that we occupy across Pakistan are not designed for women. So you build a public transport network without really adequately thinking about lighting or thinking about the spaces that need to be walked in order to get to the public transport. And women have very different safety concerns as opposed to men. So women think a lot more about my route from my home to the station. Is it well lit or not? Is there a path that I can walk on? Women think a lot more about what is the lighting at the station like? They think a lot more about public toilets. We don't have public toilets in our cities, which women can use and which are safe for women to use. So public transport, definitely but at the same time, we also need to think about the design of cities and whether or not they're really friendly for women to be walking or uh, so for women to be walking and standing in places, whether they feel safe in those cities or not. I think like for someone who's wondering uh, lighting is I think a lot of I know from the analytics from this podcast that most of the listeners are men. So I would like them to close their eyes and imagine if someone is walking in front of them towards them on a street, they're highly unlikely, unless you're from Karachi and have been mugged a few times, you're highly unlikely to move away from that person. You'll give them some space. But if you're a woman, odds are you will go on the other side of the road to make sure that safety comes first because men attack women. And I think a lot of men forget that difference of experience and cannot empathize or even imagine what that experience feels like. Um, I am, I can little bit imagine because I've been mugged a couple of times and after that I was always move away. And then I realized, huh, that's like, you know, probably what a woman experiences several times a day if she's walking on a street in Pakistan or even elsewhere. I'm in Washington DC, probably the same here. Um, and so, I, 
on that, you mentioned the class difference, right? And I was looking at the Pakistan demographic and health survey data, a couple of years old now, um, and something stood out to me, which was that even at the higher income level, the level of labor force participation, formal labor force participation is low. It's not only low, it's lower compared to, again, India and Bangladesh. Um, why is that the case? Because one would imagine that at least from a class differential level, someone who has tertiary education would actually go out and work and join the workforce, but we don't see that in Pakistan either. No, absolutely. Um, my own work shows that when it comes to formal female labor force participation, and if you start looking at it in terms of income levels or even education levels, we follow a U-shape. So at the lower income level, participation is high. At the middle income level, participation tends to dip. And then at the high income level, participation increases again. But it's not, the increase is not at, you don't see women participation participating at the same level as you see at the lower income level. So at the lower income level, we know that women are participating because there's an economic need for it. They need to get out of the home and bring in that second income stream. At the lower income level, we're seeing women participating in the agriculture sector more than anything else, or they're working at, uh, in the informal sector. Middle income level may I feel what's happening is that the family doesn't necessarily need the second income stream so much. Your middle income households generally tend to be the more conservative households in any country. Your middle income households probably, uh, probably require women to stay at home a lot more, partly because they don't need that second income coming in. So you're seeing that, that's why you're seeing that dip in participation. Now the higher income, what I feel is happening is what I said earlier, that hostile work environment. So we know that Pakistan has this pretty thick glass ceiling, only one to 2% of, uh, we, we only see about one to 2% women in your higher occupational levels. So given that a glass ceiling here, given that daycares are readily available, nahi hai, quality daycares are readily available, nahi hai, given that your wage differential hai, at the higher education level, we are still seeing a wage differential take place. Given that offices aren't designed for women, um, I myself have been to offices where you have to walk across a male-dominated floor in order to access a bathroom, a female bathroom, but you still have to go across that male-dominated floor. Given all of these factors, what your higher income women may just be considering is, why should I go through all of this and not even earn as much as men are earning? And then after a few years, be told by my family, look, you need to sit at home and take care of the children. So why go through all of that? And remember, it's very difficult to re-enter the labor market after, um, after, you've have you've, after you've had children. And it's very difficult to enter the labor market regardless of wherever you are in the world. And in Pakistan, it becomes even harder, uh, particularly because there's such little support as far as childcare is concerned beyond your immediate family. So I think all of these factors are some of the reasons why at the higher income level, women are actively opting out of the labor market more so because their family doesn't even need, in a lot of cases, that second income stream uh, to come in. So we've covered a lot, the overview in terms of what causes the exclusion, the issues. Um, you mentioned a couple of times that, you know, cities are not designed or offices are not designed or public transport is not designed for women. Um, in the last few years or in your research in Pakistan or elsewhere, um, what are some things that you've seen that, you know, you look at and say, this is a step in the right direction, things are getting better, 
or you look outside Pakistan and say, you know what, Pakistan should learn from this experience because its culture or its socioeconomic dynamics are similar. And if we bring this in and implement this properly, things might actually improve over time. So even in Pakistan, we've been thinking there's a lot of push to think about city design and there's a safe cities initiative, right? So there is this idea and there are fantastic uh, sort of proponents of this who've been pointing out all these factors right? that, you know, you need to think about walking spaces for women. You need to get rid of this idea that, oh, motorcycle sari jo footpath pe khadi hongi. Walk, walk so you have to make cities walking friendly. And there are cities across the world that we can learn from. Uh, I think BBC, there was this fantastic little report on, I, I believe it was uh, Barcelona, and how they were thinking very deeply about how to make cities safer and how to make cities more conducive to walking and safer for women. A lot of this work is coming forward because we're seeing a lot more female leadership come up. So I think that's a fantastic step in the right direction. Not only is female leadership important in and of itself, because women just think a little bit differently from men, but I think female leadership is important because that representation matters. Uh, so having that figure that both girls and boys can aspire to, it really matters and it, may, it, it changes the face of the worker or of the labor force participant as far as your wider society is concerned. So from a city's perspective, I think there is work already going on and there's a lot that we can learn from other countries in the world. There's been a lot of positive steps as far as legislation is concerned. So just in the last few years, we've seen a lot of positive Legislate, legislature come out, which can help women. Uh, you have the Harassment at Work Act. Uh, there are still gaps in this legislature, but at least it's in the, a step in the, in the right direction. I mean, one of the positive things that has come out is the extension of the maternity leave to six months. Uh, this is, I mean, we finally got up to where India and Bangladesh were, and there's still holes in this legislation that we need to consider, but um, it, it's, it's a positive step. We, I, I feel like we're not doing enough considering that 78% of non-agriculture informal work is being done by women. We're not making sure that all of this legislature actually applies to your informal female workers as well. When we're defining workplace in a more, in, in, in a very confined manner, we need to broaden our understanding of the workspace primarily because about 80% of women, even when they're in formal uh, work, work from within the home. So none of this legislature that we're passing really applies to them. If they're in casual work and uh, the vast majority of our women, even in the, in the manufacturing sector, actually work on casual contracts, then a lot of these benefits that workers enjoy don't actually apply to these women. So we have to consider the informal economy, the casualization of our economy, within the legislature and see how we can improve that. The other thing that I want to mention, and is the legislature that we're seeing across the world that is recognizing women's homework, their care work. So India does this, there's examples in China where there is judgments being passed where women's care work is being remunerated. So there's a monetary value that is being attached to it. And that's really something that can, I, I feel, be adopted across the world. 
because it's uh, if we really need to understand the kind of multiplier effects that women generate by taking care of your children, by taking care of the home, by allowing that space through their reproductive work for productive work to happen. Because it's only that because women are taking care of the home that you can have your labor market functioning the way that it does, uh, in that you can have your factories function the way that they do. Yeah, and I think like that's what a lot of people miss, even in macroeconomic GDP calculations, right? Like if a woman is staying at home and feeding a child who goes to school and then educating them or homeschooling them for tuitions, et cetera, by the age of 18 or 21, whenever that person enters the labor market, um, their productive capacity grows as a result of that investment by the mother or the sister or the, or the grandparent or whatever. And if we're not capturing that as part of economic output and providing due you know, care and due financial remuneration as a result of that, then there is a net loss to society that is not being captured. And I think the other thing that stood out to me um, was that, in, I, and I don't know if this was formal plus informal, but this was again from the demographic and health survey, that about less than 1% of men said that they had worked in the last six months and were not paid for their work. Whereas for women, that same question was asked in that survey and the percentage was about 13%, which is a crime, right? So there is blatant open theft occurring for 13% of women um, and it's documented, but to so far not much has been done about this. And I think again, that is the due share that should be given to them and we need to think and do something about it. Um, the other thing, um, that stood out to me, and I wanted your perspective on this because we are living in an information age, but we again see a gender divide along with a digital divide. So digital divide is along class lines, and within that, there is a gender divide where women don't have access to cell phones. If they have access to cell phones, they don't have internet access. If they have that, they can't you know, load or top up the plan as they please. Someone else, mainly a man, would do that for them who owns the purse strings. Um, how much of a problem is that in your research if you've seen that and what is changing in that dynamic? Because I actually think that if we can bridge the gender divide in technology, then women can stay at home and actually earn a lot more money and the old barriers sort of go away by themselves. So as far as uh, an internet connection is concerned, Pakistan has seen a lot of gains in terms of 3G and 4G network coverage. We have seen massive gains as far as mobile uh, use is concerned or mobile ownership is concerned. But like you rightly point out, there's a big gender divide in terms of female, female owned sims here, for example. There's a big gender divide even in terms of access to internet. And what is interesting is, and I'm, I'm, I'm sure anyone who has uh, interacted with people from lower income strata know this very well, women generally won't have access to a mobile phone that is there within the household. Uh, women don't have access to smartphones as much as men do in Pakistan. And what's interesting is that even when, when women have access, they are monitored and the access is limited. So you have a smartphone within the home, women might have access to it for a particular chunk of time within the day, but they won't uh, it, a lot of time. So it will be a limited amount of time that they might have access to it. And even the access that they have, it's going to be monitored. 
Now, this has major repercussions as far as the digital technology is concerned. So there's been a massive push that branchless banking for example. And one of the reasons why there's this massive push towards branch, branchless banking of financial institutions is because less than 5% of accounts are actually female owned. So we have a major financial exclusion of women going on. And this is true, and this is not just your banks, but this is also true for microfinance institutions. And the reason why I bring in microfinance institutions is because microfinance institutions uh, offer different types of financial instruments as opposed to your conventional banking or your formal banking. And a lot of times MFI instruments, they're specifically designed to be more attractive to women. So, agar hum, so the data that I have access to is 2017 ka data and I'm hoping it has improved in the last three years or three, four years. But 2017 mein jo data data available, tha, Findex data of the World Bank, just don't have access to financial instruments of any sorts, the conventional or the unconventional ones. Now, this of course has major repercussions as far as um, even SMEs are concerned. And we know that small and medium enterprises make about 90% of all businesses within Pakistan. So where these are female owned, what do they do? How are they doing their economic transactions? What is happening to saving? I mean, what are the kind of saving instruments that women are using? The banks and the accounts can be a major force, a major form of saving that, uh, a major mode of saving that people do. So women are using different uh, types of means to save. So they rely a lot on committees, for example. You have lower income households milenge, usme khawateen income generate kar rahi hain, khawateen income save bhi kar rahi hain, income hide bhi kar rahi Lekin they're doing it in ways which the conventional market doesn't really think about. They're doing it through roskas, they're doing it through committees, they're doing the income saving and income hiding through purchases. Now, the reason why I bring up income hiding is because when you hide your income, it becomes one harder to grow your business because if your business becomes successful, then everyone's going to ask, okay, where is that income that you are generating through this expansion of business? The other thing is if you want to hide your income, digital wallets are not the way that you're going to be using. I mean, you're not going to be using digital wallets in order to hide your income because it's something that the accessibility is not, uh, it, they're not designed for income hiding. So usme, when you take all of these things into consideration, income hiding is a major requirement for women in our lower income households because they just don't have that control over their income, the income that even they are generating. And they are unable to spend that income in the way that they want. They don't have autonomy over their income. Then you start really thinking about what does what should digital technology really look like in a context like Pakistan, where women's needs are very different. So I wanted to bring up this design of digital technologies because with the pandemic, we're thinking a lot about internet access provide current technology access provide current maybe with even thinking along the lines of providing access to some sort of uh, technological instrument mobile phones provide maybe their inclusion in the economy will improve their inclusion vis-a-vis your financial instruments will improve their inclusion vis-a-vis 
uh, or the inclusion vis-a-vis -vis businesses will improve because they'll, they'll be able to sit at home and generate business. And then, of course, the inclusion vis-a-vis -vis education will also improve because learning is happening so much online. Like when you start considering that access is monitored and limited, if digital wallets, income hiding kar paayengi, ke par kar then you need to, what, what that highlights to us is that internet access, honi chahiye, technological access, but this technology you design ke mein bhi aapko because the constraints that women face and the needs that they have is very different from a lot of times what designers have in mind. A lot of times, they're going to be men designing. Or even if women are designing, the women are from higher income backgrounds within Pakistan. Pakistan if they're from higher income backgrounds, they may not even realize that autonomy So me as a designer, may not be considering because of the household dynamic that I have. So it may be so different from the household dynamic that uh, a lower income woman has that I may not really think about the constraints or the needs that they face. The reason why I bring this up is because a lot of times we talk to, and as a social scientist, I'm guilty of that. I talk to women about their constraints, but I don't necessarily talk to women about the solution that they've deployed. So this idea of hiding your income and using Roscars to hide your income is coming from the field. It's the women themselves who highlighted for us that these are the solutions that I am deploying. And what social scientists and designers can then do is build on the solutions that women themselves have come up with, improve upon them and actually come up with a design which is more generalizable that women from wider socioeconomic backgrounds can use. I think that's a fantastic example. And as you were describing that, in my mind, I thought of, I don't know if you've seen the show Mad Men, um, but an episode from Mad Men popped up and I vividly remember it now, which is, you know, Don Draper and Roger Sterling have a client come in who's a financial institution and they're talking about growing the number of accounts they have. Um, and then Don being Don is having a drink and thinking late at night and, you know, is like, wait a minute, like, the, the the people who have these accounts with the bank right now are men like me and men like me don't want our wives to find out how much money I spent on alcohol after work if I have you know an extramarital affair ongoing and I go out to the park hotel or whatever to have dinner and etc um, so I don't want that to happen so let's come up with the business bank account for the private gentleman, right? And they came up with that. And again, it's it's to your point about representation matters and having the use case understanding matters. And I think that is so, so critical. Like user-centered design is so critical because, you know, Don Draper could come up with that idea because he is the user of that type of product. And, you know, again, a woman from a lower income background or middle-class background who uses her savings or has found creative ways to hide her money from, her family because she may not have control over it otherwise may need something totally different and again that experience may be different for someone in Sindh versus Balochistan versus Khyber Pakhtunkhwa versus Punjab etc um, so we need to take that into account speaking of solutions um, what are some of the creative solutions that you think Pakistan should consider both on the private sector and on the public sector side if I were to say you know what Dr. Saiba you're free to have three big solutions that Pakistan should make to change the change the role of women in Pakistan's economy. What would you want to do? 
I, that, that's a that's a tall order. So that's um, so the things that I would like to see, and I think we've touched upon all of these in some way or form. I would like to see a greater recognition of the care work that women do. I think just whether you take macroeconomic perspectives, whether you take microeconomic perspectives, that would help change perceptions of the work that women do, that the work women are doing all the time, and the important role that they play in the economy. So I think what's really needed is for us to step, take a step back and really think about what we mean by labor force participation. I mean, we keep worrying about find a way to recognize that. And if we can remunerate that, that's fantastic. Because I mean, if you think about it, that's what basic income is doing in your Western European countries who have institutionalized basic income. Uh, that's a commitment from the government that look, we're going to provide you with that basic income regardless of whatever you do. And that whatever you do, what I'm saying is, it's not whatever you do. There's so much happening within the home already. Just recognize it and remunerate it. Uh, so that's one. I, I mean, for me, maybe it's because of the place that I am in my life. I have two young children. It comes down to care work more than anything else. We need to recognize care work. Yes, we also need to make it easier for women to do care work. Uh, one of the reasons why I strongly feel we haven't seen the kind of push towards uh, opening the economy and we haven't seen the kind of um, major effects vis-a-vis uh, -vis the pandemic than the, as opposed to the rest of the world, particularly America, uh, is perhaps because we had that buffer where we could absorb children being at home all the time so easily. So it makes it easier for men to work either from home or go, go back to offices while children are away from school or children are going only to partial schooling. There's been such a push by, by parents, by families, open schools, open daycares. Why is that? Why do you not see that push in Pakistan? Why are we seeing more and more? I mean, especially when you look at higher income households, schools it doesn't we don't need to go back to the five day school, uh, school speaking week. of schools i had a friend whose child went out back to kindergarten today after i think since the pandemic began almost a year now um and she posted a picture on instagram and said oh my god i'm so sad to have my co-worker leave and i messaged her <laughs> and i'm like let's be honest you're actually very happy that he's finally out of the home and you know you can sit at home and do the work and you're right like it's been a big issue Yes, so and Pakistan may hum school opening uh, which I mean and I'll come to why we need to push for school opening because uh I mean half of your population is largely sitting at home and absorbing that pressure of uh, not having the children go out to uh, go out to school. Of course, that creates a bigger divide between your higher income and lower income households where lower income households, are not seeing the children in any type of educational activities and they are falling behind. So there's that major concern, right? And Ismay, the major, like the, the real concern is whether or not we'll be able to see our girls go back to school uh, in our lower income households, in our middle income households. How do we make sure that once the schools do open for five days a week, it's the girls go back to school uh, along with the boys go back to school. And what are we gonna do about the learning divide, uh, the learning inequality that already exists in our economy? 
so for me the major the major push really needs to come from our understanding of the care work that women do and how that works in parallel with the productive part of your economy and how a recognition of the care work can actually make it easier in some ways for women to do the productive work if we don't understand the burdens that women face when they get back home we can't really make it easier for them to step out of the home in order to uh, work in the labor market and then at, in the labor market i don't think we are doing enough vis-a-vis -vis maternity leave vis-a-vis -vis daycare um, i don't think we are doing enough even as far as harassment at work is concerned i really feel that we need to make our work environments more conducive to women in order to get them to work. So just a really quick question here. I know you mentioned that, you know, when the economy goes down, women tend to lose work faster. Um, you know, the men get to keep the job, women are paid less, they lose their work faster. Is there a similar sort of, you know, thing happening with education and children where if the household loses a percentage of their income and the kids are going to semi-private, private schools, even at the lower income level, that पहले वो लड़के को रखेंगे स्कूल के अंदर लड़की को निकाल लेंगे और अगर लड़की फिर पैसे नहीं आए या वो बड़ी हो गई उम्र में तो उसकी शादी हो जाएगी एंड देन द स्कूलिंग इज आउट द रोड आई एम गेसिंग दैट्स हाउ इट वर्क्स वे वांटेड दैट वाज जस्ट अ थॉट यस सो पाकिस्तान के ऊपर जो काम हुआ है उसमें इट डस सजेस्ट दैट पेरेंट्स व्हेन दे आर इनकम कंस्ट्रेंट डू टेंड टू व्हाट वी कॉल पिक विनर्स and the winners in the pakistani context is inevitably going to be the male child and from a economic perspective it actually makes sense to invest more in the male child as opposed to the female child given the way that our labor market is structured there's not enough demand for women uh, women's work there's uh, this the market for secondary school graduates male versus female agar aap dekhenge so it's it's better better formed for your male secondary school graduates as opposed to your female secondary school graduates aapki um, not only is it a better so in terms of wages i've already mentioned ki women women earn only about 70% of what men do so given the wage differential given the demand for labor given the fact ki old age benefits you're more likely to get from your male child as opposed to your female child because aapki jo female child mein jo aap investment kar rahe hain after a particular point in time it is the in laws who are going to reap the benefits of that investment so given all these factors agar mujhe choice if i don't have enough income to send all my children to school and send all my children to quality education and i'm forced to pick i'm going to pick to invest in my male child because i'm going to see greater reward from that investment the other tragedy in the pakistani case is ke the quality of education is just so vastly different based on private education hai semi private education hai a public school hai ke you then pick in a different way as well you pick to send your more intelligent child perhaps to the private school and keep your other child in public school or you pick your so called winner and send that child to private school as opposed to uh, all your children to private school because aapko pata hai ki quality mein itna vast vast difference hai that you then invest in higher quality of education of some children and not all children and inevitably unfortunately it ends up being the male child who gets that uh, higher investment 
Zakaria, this has been a fascinating conversation. Um, we've learned, I personally have learned a lot. I'm sure the listeners have as well. So thank you for sharing your insights. Before I let you go, I wanted to ask, you know, this is again a topic people get super angry about when women talk about their rights and their problems. And I try to tell people uh, that I know who have a different point of view or on social media is that systemic exclusion hai, systemic harassment hai. and try to empathize and I think there's particularly on social media we will miss that empathy um, but in a bit to educate people at least the folks tuning in here what are two or three things that you would recommend that they pick up and read to better understand what is the experience of a woman like in Pakistan? So um, there's some fantastic papers that I always keep coming back to, some fantastic authors. A lot of these are actually sociologists. I'll just name a few. So there's Candioti's uh, Bargaining with Patriarchy. I think that's a paper that all feminist theorists read. Uh, it's uh, 80s ka paper. Hai. And then there's again, um, there's a paper by Mason on which gives us insight into this idea of access versus control. So in the um, when you start working on gender and you start working on women's issues, what you really quickly realize is okay, having access to income is one thing, but having control over that income is completely different. So you have to differentiate between these two. But my real love for, I mean, I work a lot on family dynamics and uh, really understanding bargaining that happens within the household. My real love for that stems from work by Becker. So Becker is just the, he, he's the one who started this idea of family economics and understanding that and when you start looking at Becker's work, then a lot of what a lot of the interactions that you see in the Pakistani context, they suddenly start to hit you and you realize, now I can actually theorize about it. So these are just uh, two or three authors that I would recommend that if you get the chance, uh, take a look at their work. Thank you for those. I will put those down in the description below. And again, thank you so much for taking out the time, joining us on short notice um, and early in the morning. So I appreciate that. I wish you have a great day and a great weekend and go to the audit march. I'm pretty sure you are going there. Have your placards, have a great time there and but stay safe and, and stay sane if you don't tune into social media afterwards. <laughs> Thank you, Zay. Thank you very much for having me. I really enjoyed having this conversation and fantastic questions. I really, really enjoyed your questions. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. Okay, you as well. Bye.